Well, I've been thinking about this series for six months or so, and I was reading the words of Jesus, and it's what got me fired up. Because Jesus made a statement that he made often in, in my text. It's in the, the book of Matthew, chapter 16. Jesus said, follow me. And that's the Christian life. The Christian life is not creeds. It's not belonging to a particular church or denomination. It isn't going through rituals. It's as simple as Jesus' statement, follow me. In other words, Christ is saying, just do what I do. And then he adds this to that statement. He said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. It was that particular phrase, find it, that got me ginned up for this series. Because I think most people haven't found life yet. Now, let's, let's work with that for a few moments, because we've been talking about that the last three weeks. What is it that keeps us from finding or discovering our lives? Well, something has to be hiding it. And that something, whatever it is, we're not dumb. Whatever is hiding our life has got to be really big. It's got to be so big that it, it either covers up our life or poses as our life. And so what, what do you think that that could possibly be that's so big that it could hide our lives? Well, imagine something so big that it could determine where you live, could determine what you eat, what you wear, uh, something that could determine, in many cases, how people feel about you. Um, it make you. What if it could make you feel secure? What if it caused other people to do things for you? What if not having it was a, such a frightening experience that you would actually begin to do self-hurtful things in order to acquire it? Things like, in order to get a little bit of it today, promising to get back a whole lot of it tomorrow, and keeping that going until those promises to give back more tomorrow wound up almost drowning you. Well, you know instantly, when I talk about whatever that is that could do all those things, I'm talking about money. Because it is money that can decide where we live. Money uh, can decide what we do with our time. Money certainly affects the way people feel about us, and, and on and on it goes. Something that big could actually begin to make us believe that it is our life. And I think that many Americans, and now let me scratch that, most Americans, let me go a little further. Most American Christians have the belief that money is our life. It's so big, it's so powerful, that even though we may say we have other values, money tends to be what our life is about, and, and we more than any other nation in the world. But I think it's worse than that. I've told this story many times and usually tell it in other, in other kinds of sermons. But I like to study history. And after World War II, it was, well, we you know here in the United States, we had all the parades and everything, and our soldiers and airmen came home. But in Europe, it was a really terrible time because the cities of Europe were devastated financially. Many of them had been bombed out. And so many adults had been killed that there were thousands, hundreds of thousands of orphans roaming the streets. And it was on a cold London morning that one such orphan boy, 10, 11 years old, I guess, hungry, hadn't eaten in a couple of days, was pressing his nose up against a bakery window. And guys, even if you've eaten, you still know what it's like to get close to Krispy Kreme. <laughs> and the donut smell was wafting out, and the smell of other sweetbreads. And so the poor kid there hadn't eaten. He was smelling a delicious smell in that cold morning with his nose pressed up against the glass, but with no money. Well, G.I. came by with his Jeep and took in the situation in just a moment, pulled his Jeep over to the curb, got out of the Jeep, walked over to the little boy, and he said, son, would you like a donut? And the kid said, oh, yes, sir, please. So the American soldier went into the, to the bakery, got a dozen donuts in a sack, and brought out the entire sack and gave it to the little boy, a sack full of hot, fresh donuts. 
And as the soldier turned to get back into his jeep, a little boy pulled on his sleeve and said to him, Mister, are you God? I want to tell that story in a different way today. I think for many of us, money does so many things that we look at money and we ask, Money? Are you God? Are you God? Even in a church like this, and I guess in all American churches, I think the truth of the matter is many of us struggle with this. We can worship and we can say that God is our God, but we don't really live like God is our God. We, we live like money is our God. You know, we, it's like there have been many television stories like this or stories in the movies, or some of you may know a real story like this. A story of a, a rich guy who has a mistress. He sleeps with a woman all week, but he's got a wife. And so when he shows up for marriages or weddings, rather, or, or Christmas, he's there with his family, the ultimate family man. But the rest of the week, he's sleeping with his mistress. Well, that's a common story to us. But I think for many of us, that's how we are with God and money. It's like we sleep all week with money. And then whenever someone asks us we say oh god is my god or when we worship we say god is our god you know there's often tension in church when we talk about money and the prevailing concept is the reason for that is there's a sense that the church wants to get your money but if you're a new springer you know that that's something i never really pressure you to do i always tell you to do what's in your heart and i don't even talk about it nearly as much as i should see i i don't think that's what causes the tension not in a million years I don't counsel anymore, but back in the days when I used to counsel in a church that's much smaller, there were unfortunately several times where I had to sit across from a man in my office and say to him, you're going to have to choose. You're going to have to choose between your wife and your mistress. You're going to have to make a choice right now. Or I've sat across from a woman and I've said to her, you're going to have to choose between your husband and your lover. You can't keep this going on. And I can tell you, just trust me on this one. That's a very, very tense moment. And I think that's exactly the moment that we have in American churches today when we hear from God about money because I think it's not that we're afraid the church is going to get our money. I think it's that choice that says pick between your spouse and your lover. Well, let's set that aside for the moment because it's getting really quiet in here. So let's go back to where we started. <laughs> let's go back to that idea that money tends to hide our lives. And money pretends to be God. But let, let me just go here just so that we'll all have a good starting point. Money makes a lousy God. Even though it pretends to be God and can convince some of us that it is God, it makes a very lousy God because, first of all, $20 is all morale, so let me out of the house with. No, that's not really true. First of all, money didn't give us life. The breath that you have going in and out of your body, the life that you have, money didn't give that to you. Money didn't give you life. Number two, money makes promises it can't keep. You know, here's the thing. Many of us have the feeling if we just had X amount of money, we'd be okay. But what I've discovered is you can always spend more than you make. It doesn't matter how much money you make, you can always spend more than you make. I talked to a husband and wife one time who were both, and I'll just say it, they were both surgeons. And they both had, each had seven-figure incomes. And the wife said to me, she said, we're in financial trouble. She said, and we make an insane amount of money. She said, and, and I don't know why we do it. She said, my husband has a Porsche and a Mercedes that he doesn't even drive. Just keeps them in a warehouse. 
Well, if it could happen to them, it could happen to any of us. And how many of us here today, you know, are 35 years old or 40 or 50 years old? If somebody could have told us 15, 20 years ago what we're making today, we would have thought, oh, we'd be rolling in wealth, and yet we have very little financial margin. You can always spend more than you make. So money makes promises it doesn't keep. But here's the big aspect of that. No matter how much money you acquire, you're going to run into problems that money isn't a solution for. I spent some time one time with a guy who had, and I'm not overstating this, nearly a billion dollars with a B, nearly a billion dollars. Fine man. And yet he had a son he hadn't spoken to in years. And as I listened to the heart of this great guy, I thought, here is a guy who would give away his wealth if he could have a relationship with his son. See, that's the thing about life. It's going to present a whole lot of scenarios to you that money can't fix, money can't buy. Money makes promises it can't keep. Listen, guys, I'm a rich man. I need next week's paycheck. But God has rained down so many things on me that money can't buy. And by the way, you know, in life, it's not what you own. It's what you have access to that matters. And access comes with the favor of God. Help me on this. Isn't it better to have access to a boat than to own a boat? <laughs> I'd rather have access to a plane than to own a plane. Right? So here's the thing. God has the ability to put favor on your life and give you things that money can't buy. So I'm just telling you, money's a lousy God. First of all, because he didn't give you life. Secondly, it makes promises it can't keep. And here's the third reason. You're going to leave it all behind when you die. You know, our, our, our graphic for this series is kind of like a, a classic board game. And some of us can remember before all the electronic versions of games what it was like to play Monopoly. And you know, you play Monopoly and you have the paper Monopoly money. You ever make a killing playing with your family Monopoly and you get all this stack of money and then everybody gets mad at you and goes to bed and leaves you to put the game up. You got to put all the money back in the box. <laughs> well, I don't care if you have $100 million. That's how this world is going to end. Here's the thing. I'm not trying to be graphic. I'm not trying to be cold. Just trying to be real. When you die and they have your body on a slab, you won't look any different from the homeless person they picked up on the street the night before. And you won't have any more money than he does or she does. Well, last week, Jesus said, follow me. And the first place he took us was to authenticity. Today, he is saying to follow him. And this time, he's going to take us to talk about money. And, and, and for some of you, especially those of you who are very wealthy or you're high producers in life, you're going to have a moment to sort of catch your breath here and, and to feel better about this talk. Because the first thing I want to tell you is Jesus is not telling you to give all your money away. You know, there, there is a poverty gospel out there that's as phony as a prosperity gospel. God, Jesus is never telling you to give all your money away. He only told one guy that, and that's because the guy told Jesus he was perfect. Jesus said, great, knock yourself out, give everything away. And the second thing that you would discover about Jesus if you were to study him is that he's, a, he's not a socialist. Man, Jesus is not into wealth redistribution. Someday I'm going to do a series called The Business Principles of Jesus. I cannot wait to do this series. I'm going to do this someday. Because when you read the stories of Jesus, there's so much good business in this. And one thing that you will discover is Jesus is pure free market. Let me give you an example. I did a series called U Times 2 probably seven, eight years ago. And I don't know if it's still available or not. But in U Times 2, the whole series is built around a particular story Jesus told. I'll tell you the story real fast. It's a story of a very wealthy guy who had a fortune. And he had three wealth managers who worked for him. And he decided, he looked ahead of time as to what they were able to handle. And he called in all three wealth managers, and he said to the first guy, I'm going to give you five talents to manage. A talent's roughly worth $800,000. So that's $4 million. 
said, I want you to handle $4 million for me. Go out and make it happen. The second guy said, I'm going to give you two talents. That'd be, well, $1.6 million. That's still a sizable amount of money. No insult that he didn't get the $4 million that his buddy got. But he said, I've sized up your abilities, and we'll give you $1.6 million to handle. Third guy said, I'm going to give you one talent. That's $800,000. I still need a million. That's a lot of money. So the, the, the wealthy guy went away, and he left these guys to work. And when he came back and he required an accounting of them, the first guy, man, he couldn't wait to give his report. He said, sir, you left me with $4 million. I went out. I made it happen. I got another $4 million for you. You got $8 million now. And, and in Jesus' story, the wealthy guy said, fantastic. You're a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, and we'll give you a whole lot to manage. And beyond that, we're going to have some profit sharing here. And the next guy at this time, he was ready to give his report. He said, sir, you left me with $1.6 million. I went out and doubled that. I got $3.2 million. And the owner said the same thing to him that he said to the guy that made more money. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little bit. I will give you more to manage. And beyond that, profit sharing. Third guy, unfortunately, had attitude. Have you ever noticed that people with attitude produce accordingly? The third guy came in, he was just smirking, and he said to the wealthy guy, you're not fair, you mistreat people, you expect too much, and I knew you weren't fair, so I'll tell you what I did, I went out and dug a hole, and I buried your $800,000, and here it is back, you can have it back, see I haven't taken anything. And in Jesus' story, the wealthy man fired him on the spot, and he said, take away, watch this, he said, take away his $800,000, now, in our egalitarian so-called Christianity that we have today, we, you know, because everything's about people feeling good, we would expect Jesus to say, take the $800,000 away from him and give it to the second guy who doesn't have quite as much as the first guy. But no. In Jesus' story, he said, take the $800,000 and give it to the top producer. Now, guys, I don't know what you read when you hear that. But what I see is, first of all, Jesus has no problem with robust profit. You may be better at math than I am. Looks like 100% to me. And number two, he's into rewarding top producers, even profit sharing. He, he's, you know, he, he's into firing unproductive people with bad attitudes. And he's into trusting the best people with the best resources. All I'm telling you is Jesus is about as free market as you can get. He's not a socialist. And he's not into wealth redistribution. So if, if he's not saying that you should give it all away, and, and, and if, he's, if he's fine with good, robust business practices, what's his point? What's his point? Well, in the next few moments that we have together, I think what we're going to learn from Jesus is Jesus is fine with you having money. He wants you to keep it in perspective. Where do you keep your money? Do you keep it in perspective, or do you keep it out of perspective? Well, he talks so much about money for me to take the next 10 minutes or so and tell you what Jesus said about money is almost laughable. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you two things that Jesus emphasized over and over about money that will help us. These two things will help us a great deal. Here's the first thing Jesus wants us to understand. Money is big. Money's big. It's a very important thing. The reason I preach this to you is I understand that a lot of us come from religious traditions that have the idea that the sacred is over here and the everyday is over here. And, you know, these are sacred things and money is, is like over here. It's, it's an unimportant thing. Man, Jesus, 15% of what Jesus said was about money, more than he said about heaven and hell combined. So no getting around the fact money is a big thing. So let me tell you how it's big in three areas that will help us. First of all, money is a big test when it comes in. 
When money comes into our life, that is a big test to test our heart. You ever know somebody who got some money, and next thing you know, they're a very different person? You know, I've met people like that. Actually, back in the days when I used to counsel, so many times I heard this story. You know, husband and wife, they fought all the time. And, and one of them would say to me, you know, when we first got married, we didn't have two nickels to rub together. Now we got a lot of money. We have something to fight over. I've heard that story many times. See, money can change us. One of the great tests of life is if you've been blessed in life and you've gotten money and you're still the same person that you were, congratulations. You just passed a big test because you had money coming in and it didn't change your heart. Now, number two, the second big test is when money goes out. Because money coming in tests our heart. Money going out tests our values. Jesus makes one of the most peculiar statements in the Bible. And many of us have heard it, but we haven't considered its peculiarity. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Now that sounds grammatically backward. Because we, we expect him to say, where your heart is, that's where your money is. You know, your, 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 wherever your passion is... That's where you'll put your money. Jesus flips that, and he says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Now, guys, I've, I've seen that for years. I never really understood his point until I was getting ready for this talk, and then it clicked. The prophet said in the Old Testament, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So the measurement here is not where we say our heart is. The measurement is where our money is. See, I can tell you all day long, I love God with all my heart. I love God more than anyone in the world. I can tell you that I love changing the people's lives. I can tell you I love making a difference in the world. I can say that all day long. And you know what the weird thing is? I can really believe that. See, the reason why Jesus said where your, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Our hearts lie. Bank statement's dumb. I mean, there's a reason why in the Watergate scandal, the, the statement of, you know, those who investigated it was follow the money. Money leaves a trail. And so consequently, you know, if you want to know where your heart is, don't listen to your mouth. Look at your financial statements. Sometime when you get a little time, write down two statements, okay? Just for fun, try an exercise. Write down the statement, I love me, and right below that, I want to change the world and run the numbers. Run the numbers. That's what Jesus is saying. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Third way that money is big is in the moment that you start getting money, there's a battle. And I think this is the key thing Jesus wants to get us to understand in this first point is there's a battle for control. And here is the question. Will we control our money or will money have control of us? From time to time, I try to tell you about great people you should know about. I don't know if the name Peter Marshall rings a bell, but Peter Marshall was an American treasure. Scottish preacher came to the United States Man, Peter Marshall was pastoring megachurches before any of us knew what to call it. He pastored two great churches in Georgia. And then he went on to pastor the church that was known as the Church of the Presidents, uh, New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. And that's the church that Lincoln had attended. And he, Peter Marshall pastored during the time of, of World War II. And Roosevelt attended, many senators and congressmen attended to hear, come here, Peter Marshall. There was never enough room. There was always overflow. Peter Marshall was innovative. He was colorful. He was doing exciting things before the rest of us ever thought about it. And his, some of his sermons 
few of his sermons are available in audio, and I got to tell you, they still light me up when I hear them. After Peter died at 47, his wife Catherine told a story in A Man Called Peter. Some of you may have read the book. Actually, Hollywood made a movie about it. It's a classic movie. If you get, your chance, get a chance to get your hands on it, it's really worth watching. And, I was, and this has nothing to do with our sermon, but Peter Marshall was preaching at Annapolis on Sunday morning. And uh, strangely moved not to bring his message. And he told the audience of these young midshipmen, he said, God won't let me preach what I started to preach. And he preached on what is your life? It is a vapor. And he preached on heaven to those men and being sure you're going to heaven. That morning was Sunday morning, December 7th, 1941. What a powerful man of God. You should know about him. But he also had a great sense of humor. Got him in trouble sometimes. I know a little bit about that. Anyway, he had a real, real wealthy guy in his church. And, you know, Scripture teaches that the first tenth of what we get belongs to God. We don't give that. We bring that. And that's what he was talking to Dr. Marshall about. He said, Dr. Marshall, I have a problem. He said, you know, I used to make $20,000 a year, which is a lot of money in those days. So I used to make $20,000 a year. And he said, my tithe was $40 a week. I didn't have any problem with that. But he said, now I make a half million dollars. And he said, my tithe is $1,000 a week. And that is just too much to give. I can't do that anymore. And Peter Marshall said, could I have a prayer with you? Well, who's going to, I mean, he's chaplain of the Senate. Who's going to tell Peter Marshall you can't pray? So the man said, sure. So Dr. Marshall began to pray. He said, dear God, my brother here, when he made $20,000 a year, he didn't have any problem bringing the tent to $40 a week, and now he's struggling. Oh, dear God, would you please reduce his salary back to... <laughs> As I've already told you, Peter Marshall was a mighty man of God. This guy reached out and stopped him mid-prayer and said, oh, Dr. Marshall, please don't pray that. I don't have any problem tithing. <laughs> Well, what's the point? You know, the weird thing about that is, is when you're making $20,000 a year and he tithed, he had a lot less left over than when he made a half million dollars in tithe. And, 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 and statistics prove that people who make less are more inclined to give than people who make a lot. Why is that? Because somewhere when they started getting more money, money got its hands around their throat. Money got control. See, that's the reason why he tithed easily at 20000 but he couldn't tithe at 500000 Money now controlled him. You know, if I had a line of cocaine up here on this desk, I'd be in a lot of trouble. Uh, <laughs> you'd have fewer guys, fewer police officers out directing traffic that'd be dealing with me. If I had a line of cocaine up here on this desk and a fifth of Jack Daniels and a roulette wheel, and I asked you, are these dangerous? You'd say, yeah, yeah. Why? Because they're addictive. And yet the weird thing about that, I could put money among them and we wouldn't think it's a problem at all. But listen, guys, money is more addictive than cocaine. It is. And it can get its hands around your throat, whether it's th through spending or acquiring or debt or gambling. I mean, money has an addicting factor to it. And so money is a big test to see whether we have control of it or it has control of us. I mentioned tithing a moment ago. Morales and I, we believe that the first tenth of our income belongs to God. We don't give it, we bring it. But what's the point of the tithe? Do you really think that God needs my 10%? I mean, he owns the world. He's not up in heaven sweating out how can he get his hands on Mark Hoover's stack. He can just put my lights out and take it all. You know, 
So God's not, I mean, I mean, after all, God's not a charity case looking for donors. He's an entrepreneur looking for partners. So, what is, I mean, and on top of that, when I bring the tenth to him, he uses it to fund his work, and he turns around and gives back to me. God in 90% is a lot bigger than you in 100%. And I've discovered that. I mean, I've discovered if I give God with a teaspoon, he gives back with a shovel. If I give with a shovel, he gives back with an earth mover. That's just God. So what's the point? I mean, why does he even have to go through that dance in the first place? Because God can do anything he wants to do. I really do believe that, and Marilyn and I think about this a lot, tithing is a test. It's just sort of a test to see whether we're in control of our money or our money is in control of us. I think it's a weekly test just to check and make sure we're still in control. Jesus wants you to know money is a big deal. It's a big deal. So big that Jesus put it this way. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is interesting. There, there are a lot of gods in the world, sex, power, possessions, whatever. Jesus distilled them all down to one, money. Why? Because money can buy all the rest of it. You can't serve both God and money. Okay. In my notes, it says halftime, but really I'm, way past, I'm somewhere in the beginning of the fourth quarter. <laughs> what have we learned so far? We've learned that with God, it's not money versus life. God doesn't want you to give all your money away. He wants money to be part of your life. He just wants you to be in control of your money and not it to be in control of you. Now let me give you the second thing that Jesus teaches. And if you read what he says about money, you'll discover that he says this over and over and over. And it's this, simply. Money needs to be used in view of eternity. This is my 38th year to pastor, my 30th year here at New Spring. If you were to back me into a corner and say, Mark, what is the most difficult concept that you have to get across? I can tell you real simply. And I don't know how to get this across. I've tried, but I'm not sure. I think deep down inside, we have a feeling that eternity is what God wants us to think about right when we get ready to die. We should think about this life right now, and then whenever it's time to die, that's the time to think about eternity. All you need to make sure is that you got hell insurance. <laughs> and this is the reason when we come up with all these nutty ideas about heaven, you know, we float around in clouds and stuff. Reasons we haven't thought about it much. But guys, here's the thing. If heaven and hell are what God says they are, and especially heaven, it needs to be the backdrop of every significant decision in our life. Every decision that you make in life should be made against the backdrop of eternity. I mean, it just makes all the sense in the world. I'm only going to live here for 100 years at most. I'm going to live in heaven for a trillion years plus. So if I can do something today that either impacts this life or the life to come, which is the better investment? If I take this $20 and I do something that impacts this life, that's probably a good thing. But if I do something that impacts the next life, it's just a way better investment. And this is what Jesus is saying over and over and over and over again. Whatever you do, do it against the backdrop of eternity. Let eternity frame your decisions. Well, let me give you, and I'm out of time here pretty much, so I'm just going to read you some scriptures that Jesus gave us, and these will help us understand the point he's trying to make. The first question is, what good is, this is Mark 8, 36. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? So what if a person were able to pile up everything and yet die and go to hell? That would be a bad investment. 
Matthew 6, 19, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But look at his statement here. Store up for yourselves. Jesus is saying, do this for you. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where we, that's where we saw the statement, that's where your heart will be also. Well, I've got seven minutes left to close this out, so I want to give you two stories of Jesus that emphasize two major points that he wants us to get in, in thinking about eternity and money. Here's the first one. This is in Luke chapter 12. Jesus is teaching. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you. Honestly, I don't know if Jesus got ticked, but I'm guessing if he did, he really got ticked right here because he's in the middle of teaching. And some clown walks up to him and says, Jesus, stop what you're doing. My brother is cheating me. Make him give me what's mine. I've had that happen to me in counseling before. And so Jesus launches into a story. It's a really big one. Jesus replied, um, watch out, verse 15. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life, a woman's life, does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them this story. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? Notice all the personal pronouns here, especially all the ones about him. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. What's wrong with that? You know, ever since I've been a teenage preacher, I've had people, especially in prophecy messages, come up to me and say, Mark, do you see America in the Bible? Sure do, right there. I mean, this is a guy that worked hard. He got stuff. He said, I'm going to find a way to hold on to it, and then I'm going to get to the place where I can just chill, and everything can, I can just enjoy life. Sounds smart, right? And yet Jesus said, verse 20, God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get all you've prepared for yourself? Now, here's the statement. This is where we're going to learn a lesson. This is how it will be with anyone, no exceptions. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not, and here's the operative statement, rich toward God. New Spring, please listen to me. God has no problem with you being rich. In fact, Americans, you probably are the richest 1% of people in the world. Even people who live at the poverty level in America are rich compared to the rest of the world. But that aside, God has no problem with you being rich. But the thing about being wealthy, which all of us are, is that wealth is aimed somewhere. Jesus has no problem with you being rich. The question is, where's your wealth aimed? Is it aimed towards self? Is it aimed toward me? Are we conspicuous consumers of what we have? Or is our wealth aimed toward God? Do we leverage what God has given us to make a difference in people's lives? The second story Jesus told is kind of a quirky one. And I, some, some of the stories Jesus told are really unusual. This one really is. Jesus told a story about another wealthy guy who had a wealth manager. And we typically know this story as the story of, quote, the unjust steward. We had a Greek expert here many years ago named Spiros Sodiades. He was Greek himself. And he said he was the unjustly accused steward. I don't know. Just know 
He was a money manager who worked for a guy, and something had come up, and he was about to get fired. But before he got fired, still with full power to manage the estate, he went to some of the people who owed his boss money. And he went to one guy, and he said, and I'm going to throw some numbers out there. These I'm just going to supply, but it's the principle of the story. The one guy said, how much do you owe? Oh, $5 million. He said, take your debt, strike through the $5 million. You now owe $2.5 million. I'll sign off. He went to the next guy. How much do you owe? $2 million. Strike that. Write down $1 million. I'll sign off on it. Then he found another guy. How much do you owe? $500,000. Strike through that. Write $250,000. I'll sign off on that. And this is, isn't that a quirky story for Jesus to tell? But when the wealthy guy heard about what had, what had happened, he actually commended the guy for his shrewdness. He said, you've done something smart. And that's where Jesus launched into a point that kind of stings me. Stings me pretty good. Most of the things Jesus says in the Bible comforts me, but this one stings me. Jesus said the secular business world is smarter than the family of God. I don't like to hear that, do you? Jesus said the secular business world is smarter in their operations than God's people. Now, what was Jesus' point? This guy who went around to all those people who owed money and cut their bill in half, the reason why the boss commended him was he understood that when that man got fired, he would have some friends to go stay with who would take care of him. And Jesus said, what we need to do is to leverage resources in this life to make friends for eternity so that they will welcome us into everlasting habitations. Jesus is saying, take today's wealth and leverage it and use it so that you can change people's lives. Guys, I don't want to, you know, I'm not talking about a building here today. But I got to tell you, that's why I want to give to our new building. Because the thing about it is... You know, we're, we're, building, we're building facilities for kids. <laughs> there are kids in elementary school. They may be being abused by their parents. They may be confronted with drugs and substance abuse. They may be living a horrible life. But if New Spring continues to be what it is, I know what happens. They will come into our environment. They'll feel the love of God. They'll feel a different kind of feeling. They'll come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, Christ and their life will change. I want to invest in that. I want to have a part in that. I want to have a part in what God is doing. God's not telling you to give your money away. He's not saying there's anything wrong with being rich. He just wants you to know it's a big deal. It's a big test going, coming in to test, test your heart. It's a big test going out to test your values. And there's a big struggle going on to see if you're going to control your money or it's going to control you. And Jesus just wants you to think about eternity when you spend your money. I hope this is helpful. I hope we can move aside that camouflage that's hiding our life and see what God wants us to do. Money is to be part of your life, but you're to be in control of it. May God bless you. Thank you for being here today. We'll take it up a level next week.